Welcome back. This is the story of the Old Testament. We're walking through First and Second Samuel. I hope you're doing well today. Thank you for joining us. Um, we have some exciting passages of Scripture to read, some of the most famous ones. Um, 1 Samuel 12 through 18, David and Goliath, um, Saul's fall, um, tragically. Um, but we see God has a king prepared for Israel. And out of the midst of tragedy, God has a king prepared for us as well. So this is for week 30, July 23rd through 29th. Thank you for joining us. So let's talk about 1 Samuel 12 through 18. Saul has been declared king. He's been anointed. He's the king that they wanted. Remember, um, Saul is the king that um, the people of Israel wanted. They wanted a king just like all the other nations. And so God gave them a king just like all the other nations. But this king failed, obviously. He broke God's commandment in 1 Samuel 13, 1 Samuel 15. Um, he becomes a mess. After an initial success with the Lord's help, he falls apart. But the Lord has a king set aside for himself. And we see that in chapter 16. The Lord sends Samuel to go after and go fetch his shepherd for his people. The people of Israel wanted a guy that was tall, handsome, looked the part of a military warrior. Um, and so they got Saul. But God knew that they didn't need, um, and God does not rule us with strength and might uh, in the world's eyes. He went after and got a shepherd who cares for sheep. And that's who he put over as the shepherd for his people, Israel. He went out and got David. That's ultimately a picture and a proclamation of Jesus Christ, who's the good shepherd, who does not rule us with roughness and with, um, uh, you know, with, with uh, harshness to his people. He loves us and he lays down his life for us and he knows us by name. And that's who Jesus Christ is as our King and our Lord. So we see David comes and defeats Goliath. We see David and Jonathan's friendship. And so we start to see the tension begin to develop with Saul and David. So what can we learn from these passages of Scripture? First of all, 1 Samuel chapter 15, right? This is the famous passage where um, uh, Saul is rejected by the Lord because of his disobedience. And so this is from Spurgeon. This is 1 Samuel chapter 15. Resist deceit, this is called. And it's based on 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 22. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. Spurgeon writes this. Saul had been commanded to completely wipe out all the Amalekites and their cattle. Instead of doing so, he preserved the king and allowed his people to take the best of the oxen and the sheep. When called to account for this, he declared that he did it with a view to offering sacrifice to God. But Samuel met him at once with the assurance that sacrifices were no excuse for an act of direct rebellion. The sentence before us is worthy to be printed in letters of gold and to be displayed before the eyes of the present idolatrous generation who are very fond of making a show of disobedience or a show of obedience, but who utterly neglect the laws of God. Never forget that to keep strictly to the path of your Savior's command is better than any outward form of religion, and to pay attention to his precept is better than to bring animals or other precious things to lay upon his altar. If you are failing to keep the least of Christ's commandments to his disciples, I urge you to be disobedient no longer. 
All the pretensions you make of attachment to your master and all the devout actions that you may perform are no substitute for disobedience. To obey, even in the slightest and smallest thing, is better than sacrifice, however pompous. Forget the Gregorian chants, sumptuous robes, incense, and banners. The first thing that God requires of his child is obedience. And even if you gave your body to be burned and all your goods to feed the poor, if you did not listen to the Lord's commands, all your formalities would profit you nothing. It is a blessed thing to be teachable as a little child, but it is a much more blessed thing when one has been taught the lesson to carry it out to the letter. How many adorn their temples and decorate their priests, but refuse to obey the word of the Lord. My soul do not share in their deceit. Now that is a very searching passage, isn't it? Uh, for me, and I'm assuming for you, um, that there can be times in our lives when we want to um, impress God as if that's possible or try to manipulate God with some kind of external show of religion. But he's not impressed with that. Um, he sees beyond the facade and the masks that we put on. He sees who we really are. And as Spurgeon points out here, to be obedient in the smallest thing is better to be disobedient and to have all this pompous external religion. We have to be careful of that. I do, and I'm sure you do too, because that's what we see um, here in the life of Saul. He was wanting to be uh, upheld in the eyes of men. He cared about what men thought. He cared about what the nation thought. But sadly, he did not care what God thought. He did not care what the Heavenly Father thought. And that is a, a dangerous place to be. And um, may we, may the Lord help us and by the Holy Spirit's power to fight that um, and to oppose, oppose that in our lives. Well, here we then turn, because God finds a king for Israel after the, the disobedience of Saul. In chapter 16, he has a, a shepherd boy, David, the youngest. The Lord finds him, anoints him, makes him king. But then in 1 Samuel 17, we meet the people of Israel uh, gathered, and they are facing a giant. Um, we read that the Philistines are gathered together for battle, and on the one side over there, they've got a champion named Goliath. He's huge, strong, intimidating. Um, and the people of Israel, the army of Israel, those men are scared to death, quaking in their boots as they look at this guy, and they, the challenge is issued. You pick one man to fight me, and that's how we will determine um, who wins this battle and who uh, defeats who. So the Philistines send forth this guy, and of course you know the story, David and Goliath. I want to read this from Chad Bird, however, um, who is coming in March of 2024 to our men's conference. Um, he's got this, David versus Goliath. We're teaching the story all wrong. Um, so listen to this. And as we think about again, this story of David and Goliath, um, think about what it really means and what its promises mean to you and me. He writes this, ever since its appearance in the late 1700s, Sunday school has played a key role in teaching boys and girls how to read the Bible like they're not Christians. When little Johnny is taught the story of Noah's Ark, he learns three truths from it. One, Noah was good and God loved him. Two, Noah was obedient and God saved him. Three, if Johnny is good and obedient, God will love and save him too. 
When young Teresa is taught the story of Daniel and the lion's den, she learns, one, Daniel was faithful even when bad men were against him. Two, God rescued Daniel because Daniel was faithful to God. Three, if Teresa is faithful, God will rescue her from bad people too. All narratives are easily kidnapped and pressed into service by our self-absorbed egos. Give us a story, ask us which character we identify with the most, and we'll choose the hero or heroine. We see ourselves in them. They embody our desires for victory, success, approval. Bible stories are no different. Take the account of David and Goliath. Do a Google search on this story. You'll find hundreds of Sunday school lessons about five smooth stones that you can use to battle giants in your own life. With courage, confidence, preparation, trust, and victory, you can overcome. With the Spirit of God, past experience, the Word of God, a vision of something big, and a heart full of faith, you can take down the giants you face. Each lesson is a variation on the same threefold theme. One, David chose five smooth stones when he faced Goliath. Two, God has given you five smooth stones to face giants in your own life. Three, if you use these stones, you too will be victorious. A popular meme summarizes it this way. Sometimes God puts a Goliath in your life for you to find the David within you. Notice that there's almost always one thing missing from lessons such as these. Jesus, the one the Bible is all about the center of the Old Testament, the author and perfecter of our salvation, and who has taken his place? We have. Our faithfulness, our obedience, our battles, weapons, victories. Sunday school has become the place for self-affirmation, self-actualization, self-esteem. As we do in daily life, so we have done in our readings of the Bible, we have placed ourselves at the center and Christ at the periphery. Allow me to sketch out a very different way of teaching the narrative of David and Goliath. It's not a story about us overcoming giants. It's a story about Christ overcoming us, killing us, and saving us. The Philistine behemoth of a man who stood on the battlefield is more like we are than we care to admit. He is, in fact, the incarnation of everything that's wrong with us. We are born enemies of God. We are full of ourselves. We not only have a giant problem, we are a giant problem. We defy God. We exalt ourselves. It's all about me. If Goliath were Roman instead of Philistine, his motto would be homo incurvitus in se, that is, man turned in upon himself. A navel gazer, an ego addict. This is who we are as sinners. We're foes of heaven, giant sinners. What we need is not to be schooled in the art of moral improvement. Goliaths can't be reprogrammed into good boys. What we need is not for David to hand us a 100-page self-help guide on how we can have the best life now if we just clean up our act and get our priorities in line. No, Goliath needs one thing. He needs to be killed. And that's what our David does. Our David, the new and second David, marches onto the battlefield to slay us. We need to die before we can live. There is no other way. But Christ, the son of David and David's Lord, does not sling a rock into our big heads. He has a liquid weapon. He holds us under the water of baptism. In that wet death, we are joined to a bloody death, David's own. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We die, but we die with him. We are drowned, but we are crucified with him. David wraps his arms around us Goliaths and plunges us into the watery grave with us. Together we die and together we rise. 
not with five smooth stones, but with the 18 words, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. We are killed, but also resurrected. We die to ourselves and are raised into Christ. We who bore the image of Goliath now bear the image of David. We die and rise in him. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal, God says. Deuteronomy thirty-two thirty-nine. This is how God works on us, how he always works on us. He crucifies us in water and enlivens us in that same water. We are drowned as Goliaths. We are raised as Davids. We die to ourselves and live in Jesus. This, I would suggest, is a better way to teach the story of David and Goliath to our children. Rather than telling them what great things they can do, tell them what great things God has done for them in Jesus Christ. Rather than making this story another tale of personal victory, tell it as good news about Christ's victory for us. Who knows, with this approach, we might just begin teaching our children how to read the Bible like they're Christians. That's a very interesting way to read it, isn't it? Um, that the in some, we often think of ourselves as David, but Chad Bird there says, maybe we should think about ourselves as Goliath, as the one who needs to be killed. And, but, and he points out in baptism, that's exactly what Paul says, um, your baptism preaches to you. Um, now we as Baptists don't believe that that the water itself does is is magical or does that, but the word and what it represents and what it is what is united to the water, which is uh, God's promise and declaration in Jesus Christ that we receive by faith, is that we die and we have risen with Christ when in His cross. When by faith you look to Jesus Christ, the Bible says you have been co-crucified with Jesus. And you have been co-raised with him. And that's what your baptism brings and preaches to you. It is proclaiming to you and to me that we have died. And there's a reason why, you know, I think as Baptists, right, we, we hold people under the water. We put them all the way under because if if we were to, I mean, think about it, right? If you were to go all the way under the water and never to come back up, you would literally die, you would drown, and that's what God is doing. He's drowning the old you and raising a new you in Jesus. And that's what Paul says in Romans 6, that we have been buried, we have died, we have been crucified with Christ. We have been killed so that now, having been raised with him by faith in his blood, um, and having been raised with Jesus Christ, we are now able to walk in newness of life in a way of obedience, in a way of love, in a way of service to our neighbor, in a way that's honoring and glorifying to our Father in heaven. We're new creatures now in Jesus Christ. That's an interesting way to read um, the, the story of David and Goliath. Another thing here that I want to read is another article about this same story, uh, and this is again by Chad Bird, and it's called Taking Candy from Goliath. So I want us to think about this story um, a little bit just because it's, it's so well-known and I think it's helpful for us to think about it in a way that's different uh, from the way that, that, for instance, Chad Bird points out that so often we make it about ourselves and our goodness and our abilities when actually it's about Christ and his grace. So this is, uh, again, the same story, but called Taking Candy from Goliath, Chad Bird. David and blank. Most people would fill in that blank with Goliath, of course. No surprise there. And no biblical interpretation required. We all know what a David and Goliath matchup means, even if we've never cracked open the Bible. Now, you'd think a battle as proverbial, 
as proverbial as this one must have been a Herculean challenge for David. He probably had to squeeze his heart and soul for every last ounce of energy to rise victorious over this massive foe. But no, that's not how the fight went down at all. David strolled onto the battlefield, slung one stone, and sank it into the Philistine's skull. Then David walked up and whacked off his head with Goliath's own blade. I doubt the kid even broke a sweat. Compared to the wars, persecutions, backstabbings, and family turmoil that David was yet to endure, killing Goliath was like taking candy from a baby. There's a bit of wisdom in that for all of us. You see, it's not always the Goliath issues in life that prove the most difficult for us. Goliath was an obvious enemy. He and David met on a real battlefield, and the goal was crystal clear. Kill or be killed. Not so with much of David's post-Goliath life and not so with much of our lives either. For years afterward, David's life was endangered by Saul. He was not only David's king, but his father-in-law. He threw his spear at David multiple times, hounded him through the wilderness, had spies lurking, watching David's every move. Facing a giant on the battlefield on a single day was easy, compared with facing years upon years of a family member making his life a living hell. Perhaps that's something you can relate to. David was also surrounded by both insiders and outsiders who just couldn't wait to throw him under the bus, spread lies about him, and use their venomous tongues to attack him. Again, listening to Goliath spout his idiotic bragging on the battlefield was a joke compared to the onslaught of whispering, lying, backstabbing, and character assassination that David was yet to endure. Perhaps that, too, is something you can relate to. David also brought trainloads of heartache into his own life. His cold and calculated killing of one of his best friends, Uriah, prompted by his desire to cover up his sexual assault and resultant pregnancy of this same man's wife, Bathsheba, produced some of the saddest chapters in the Bible. David's family disintegrated into rape, coup, murder, and shame. And who was to blame? David. His youthful skirmish with Goliath. Well, that probably seemed like heaven compared to the familial hell that David created as a result of his selfish and stupid actions. And that, too, I'm willing to bet, is something that many of you can relate to. Friends, it's not always the giants, the obvious enemies, the clear battlefields that prove most exhausting and dangerous for us. It's the ongoing, subtle, seductive, soul-gnawing, smaller things in life that wear us down. The job we hate, the marriage we feel trapped in, the child who's in and out of rehab, the body that keeps breaking down, the haters who keep on hating, the tongues that keep wagging, and most of all, the destructive decisions we keep on making, even though we should have learned our lesson years ago. What's a person to do? What did David do? It's not so much what David did, but what he acknowledged he could not do. Read his Psalms. There is the scroll of David's soul, inked with tears and frustration and lament and confession. Over and over, David tells God in so many words, I can't do this. I can't handle this. I'm at my end. You, dear God, you alone can help me and rescue me. You alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety, Psalm 4, 8. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side when people rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us up alive, Psalm 124, 1-3. For God alone my soul waits. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from him, Psalm 62, 1-5. Did you hear, David? You alone. If it had not been the Lord, for God alone. David did not pray, 
O power, O universe, boost my self-confidence, enhance my self-esteem, help me to believe in myself so that I may stand on my own two feet to conquer every obstacle and thus feel an empowered and independent person whom nothing and no one can stop. No, such talk reeks of the divinization of self that is the rotten, maggot-infested idol lying on the stage of the American ego drama. Rather, again and again, David prays for mercy, as do we. Mercy is at the heart of the Psalms, for mercy is at the heart of God. Cut the divine heart, and out will bleed mercy. Mercy is our only hope, and I do mean only. It is not one of many options, it is the option. Mercy protected David on the battlefield. Mercy shielded David from the verbal arrows of his Judas Iscariots. Mercy saved David when he wrecked his life, his family's life, and the lives of many others. And mercy, the mercy of our Father in Jesus Christ, that alone saves us. If our lives are an ocean, the only ship sailing that sea is christened mercy. So we climb aboard, or rather, while we're sinking and our lungs are filling with water and we're so dumb that we are swimming downward. Jesus dives into the deep, pulls us up, and drags us into the boat. He gets us there. He keeps us there. Indeed, he is the boat, for he is mercy incarnate. Our most dangerous moments are not while we're facing an obvious enemy on a clear battlefield, but while we're navigating this shadowy world full of half-lies and smooth-talking serpents, and worse of all, our own penchant for evil. So, with David... And with all the saints, we pray, Lord, have mercy. And he does. He always does. Even when we forget, we need it. That was a great article there again, right? Tying in now. So (laughs) um, on the one hand, we've read about David and Goliath, kind of the battle itself. But then we talk about now with in light of this thing, sometimes we think about this was the hardest thing David ever did. And, and Chad Burke points out, actually, it may have been one of the easiest things he ever did was defeating Goliath. The other stuff afterwards, that was really hard. And similarly, for you and me, sometimes we think the really obvious moments, the really big moments are of, of temptation. They, they it, It's very clear what's evil. And those are big moments for us. But actually, it could be all the subtle little quiet things in secret um, that can wreck our lives, um, that we are deceived and led astray, and our own penchant for evil, our own original sin that remains, uh, leads us astray. The last thing I want to read here is uh, from is about 1 Samuel chapter 18, because after David defeats Goliath, Um, he eventually becomes friends with Jonathan, the son of Saul, and they become deeply um, intertwined, um, best friends, deep friendship. And this is a good model for male friendship, I think, which is something that probably has um, uh, gone um, to the wayside in a way that's sad. Um, Men need friends, real friends with each other. And perhaps one of the big problems, particularly for young men and for maybe men of all ages, is the loneliness that comes whenever we don't develop real friendships um, with uh, other, other men, uh, particularly other Christian men within the church. So this is from 1 Samuel 18, Friendship in the Old Testament, David and Jonathan. This is from Chad Bird again. This is the last thing we'll read, I believe. Let me check real quick. 
Yes. This is the last thing we'll read. So this is about friendship. Um, and this is actually taken from a, an excerpt from a book called Where Two or Three Are Gathered, Essays on Friendship. Um, it's published by 1517. But this is from Chad Bird. As important as they are for mutual conversation, encouragement, and consolation, on a deeper level, friends keep us rooted in a genuinely human life. That is, a life in which we live outside ourselves, gladly caught up in the web of another's life, where we can love and serve them in moments of self-forgetfulness. We see something like a parable of this in the friendship of David and Saul and Jonathan. Shortly after David slew Goliath, he was brought before King Saul. The youth and the king spoke about who God was and what he had done. After David had finished the conversation with Saul, the king's son, Jonathan, became united to David in a deep and abiding friendship. The soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. Much later, after the death of Jonathan and his father on the battlefield, David sang a lament in which he said of his friend, I am distressed for you, my brother. Jonathan, very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. The language used to describe the bond between David and Jonathan is indicative not only of the intensity of their friendship, but the way in which their friendship rooted them deeply in a life of love, that is, a life of being truly human. Jonathan's soul was knit to the soul of David. The basic meaning of this verb is to bind, to tie together, as a scarlet thread was tied to the hand of Zerah, or Rahab tied a piece of scarlet to her window. The same verb is used to describe how God's words are to be kashar, or knit, to the foreheads and hands of Israel. By extension, then, it is applied to the knot of love that ties people together. Jacob's soul was kashar, or knit, to the soul of his youngest son, Benjamin, just as Jonathan's was to David. That Jonathan loved him as his own soul is expressive of what this soul kashar, or knitting, meant. He saw in David a reflection of who he himself was. This recognition pulled him outside himself and bound him to another. It simultaneously emptied and filled him, emptied himself of a life all about him, and filled him with the life of another. We see this emptying out illustrated in his stripping off of his robe and weapons and giving them to David. What was his, in his inward soul and his outward possessions, became another's. Jonathan's friendship benefited not only David, but himself as well. He discovered in this friend who he was, a love giver, a gift giver, one who empties himself into the life and soul of a friend. In short, Jonathan's actions are an epiphany of what it means to be truly human. David's words of lamentation echo and reinforce Jonathan's actions. They also take them to a higher level. His friend had been very pleasant to David. The root and derivatives of this word are used to describe beauty, goodness, and kindness. They're also applied to the God of Israel. His divine name is Naim, or pleasant. The psalmist wants to behold the Naam of the Lord in his temple, his pleasantness. David saw in Jonathan one whose kindness and pleasantness mirrored that of God himself. Moreover, Jonathan's love for him was extraordinary. This root is commonly used to describe wondrous divine acts that are beyond our ability to grasp or understand. This love, David says, was greater than the love of women. 
The love of a woman for a man or of a man for a woman is an extraordinary gift. It is frequently held up as a mirror of the love of, of the love between God and his people. In David and Jonathan's case, however, the bond of love between them was even higher than what exists between a man and a woman. It was, like divine actions, pala or wonderful, extraordinary, surpassing all expectation. As such, this love of friends mirrored even more closely the love of God for his people. Indeed, it was a gift from God, designed to enable David and Jonathan to experience in their friendship an earthly reflection of the celestial love of Yahweh for Israel. And at the same time, it was a gift for them so that they could grow into the love givers and love receivers they were made to be as those crafted in the image of the loving God. In the friendship of David and Jonathan, therefore, the Lord has given us an example of what this bond between friends enacts in the two people. They are tied together in such a way that one's soul mirrors the other's. This mirroring pulls us out of ourselves. It shows us who we truly are. And in the reception of the love of another, we see too the love of God, the extraordinary pleasant favor of Yahweh toward us. Well, that's all we've got for this week. I hope that's been encouraging to you. Um, as we think about David, his friendship, defeating Goliath, all those things. Um, and David's life only gets further complicated and more difficult. And yet God is there at the center of it, upholding him and giving him the grace and the strength he needs to press on um, in the midst of it all. So join us next week. It's going to be a lot of fun. Take care and God bless.